Oh, we started? Shit. Okay. All right. I'll get started. <laughs> I'm going to try and do this without coughing or hacking up a lung. Anyway. All right. Let's do it. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Overlap. I'm, of course, joined by Rian. Today is the last day of February, the last day of Black History Month, as uh, Rian and I were just discussing um, an important topic during Black History Month, uh, which is the viewing of the Book of Mormon, which I did this past weekend, which was conveniently so ill-timed and also very well-timed at the same time. I don't, if you have not seen it, you just have to go see it. That's the only way that I can describe it with the reference that I just made. But welcome back, of course. Thank you, as always, for listening. Um, Rian, you and I had two very different viewing experiences that I realized on Saturday night in terms of, in terms of what we watched. Still comedy, but extremely different. What did you go to see? Yeah, I went to see Cocaine Bear, which... <laughs> was <laughs> just i was saying at least like it was a lot of fun it was a very fun movie like honestly the experience was enhanced even to <laughs> level because the woman sitting next to me um I, she must have been high but she was like commenting the entire time and just like <laughs> and, and just like cracking me up so that that definitely enhanced the viewing experience but but all in all like a really fun really fun movie and like the thing that i loved the most about it was that it was so short it was an hour and a half yeah we went in at like 10 o'clock we got out just before midnight it was a great a great like saturday night experience and then and then still could do stuff afterwards but I feel like uh, you, you doesn't. It's one of those movies that doesn't have to be very long. You know what I mean? Like, there's no reason. No, to not be at two, all. Two it, and a half hours. It's great. The pacing of it is great too, because it starts off and it immediately just goes right into it, and and like throughout, and the movie's like very feels very fast as well too. So it's yeah, it's good, and it's the last movie that Ray Liotta was in, I, I think. Oh um, really? Before he died, yeah. Oh, I, I think didn't know that. I think it's I think it's his last uh like whatever theatrical appearance. Amazing. Um, wow. Well, I'm glad it was good. Um, not only do we give analysis of the beautiful game, we also give movie reviews. Um, and that's uh, all thanks to Rian specifically. I could review Book of Mormon, but I, uh, I, I would not be as analytical or as beautifully said as, uh, <laughs> as Rian was. So Much, much better. Cocaine Bear, if, if you had to pick between that and... Like Ant Man for the people listening, go see Cocaine Bear. Wait for Ant Man to come out on Disney Plus because I saw that also last week, and I would rather see Cocaine Bear another couple times than probably watch. <laughs> okay, you said again. you said to me that Ant Man was like aggressively mid. That is the definition of not mid. That's just a bad movie. <laughs> no, it, was, it, was, it was it was it was mediocre. It was very mediocre. But I would rather see a good movie multiple times than a mediocre one twice. Valid. Super valid. <laughs> super valid. I was telling around before we started recording what I'm really excited for. And I don't, what phase is the MCU in? I don't like four at this point. Um, I think four. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm very excited for volume three of Guardians of the Galaxy because that's my favorite storyline of the Marvel movies. Um, it's, I, I think it's hilarious. So I think it comes out in May. That's what I'm, I'm looking forward to. You want to go see it in May? Buy yeah, oh yeah, I mean, I'm definitely gonna go. See, uh, yeah, I'm definitely right. gonna see it. There you um, go. Yeah, the, the one the one thing with Ant Man was just like Jonathan Majors really like that actor, really good. If you've seen the Loki show, he's 
awesome in that, and his character Kang is great in that as well. And and the movie could have just used more of of Jonathan Majors. I was gonna say, has Creed three come out yet? I don't. No, no, I don't think so. But yeah, he's also in that. Yeah, he's he's a fantastic actor too. Um, he's actually done on a serious note a couple of like talks around um black history and different topics in that sphere just in in hollywood too it's really interesting um i was just listening to this week because of creed so yes love him as an actor as well um look at that we should i i we, we talk about and joke about doing a lifestyle podcast i still i still maintain that we should consider that i digress <laughs> anyway all right you want to talk about football stuff <laughs> the things that we actually know about yeah yeah i definitely know a bit more about that than lifestyle <laughs> We should bring on specific guests for, for anything lifestyle because we would be clueless. Um, for, for context, but last thing before we get into the, the soccer and football stuff, I asked Rian um, how The Bachelor is going because he's been keeping tabs on it with his girlfriend. And um, Rian's response was probably one of my favorite. It's probably like a top five Rian response. It's just, um, yeah, this guy apparently just seems like a politician and he made it you literally made it sound like he just loves each girl the same and tells them that while he's trying to find his wife which is blows my mind but again i'm not on it yeah. so oh no he's great he's toes the middle like the middle for the bachelor which is just still like really liking someone but uh, he, he he's great I, I i i just keep saying it like some he someone's gonna look at this Look at this tape and be like, "Wow, I could turn this guy into a senator." <laughs> I, I, I'm so serious. That's the real track. That's the whole point. <laughs> the um, what's it called? The Arnold Schwarzenegger track from uh, from TV star to governor. Anyway, um, all right, Rian, let's get to to football stuff, soccer stuff. Let's start in the Premier League as we always do. Manchester United won a trophy. And I'm not saying that facetiously. I mean that very seriously. Manchester United won their first first trophy in over five years, uh, coming, of course, under Eric Ten Hag. Took him a little over six months, around the six-month mark, to, to get his first trophy. You know, I think back to late August, early September, um, I think that Brentford game, when they lost 4-0, I was actually... I don't, I don't think I was in London that day. I think I was traveling to London the, the day after. And I passed by Brentford Stadium and I said to myself, wow, United really just got bodied. Like, I don't know what the season holds for them anymore. I I expected it to be difficult, but maybe not this difficult. Complete turnaround. You and I have talked about what Ten Hag has has come in and done. I think the biggest emphasis has been focusing on what the players can do and playing and deriving a system based off of their strengths. But there is one thing before you even say anything else that I want to comment on. And that is specifically the the signing of Casemiro. And that signing, when he was signed from Real Madrid for, uh, I forget how many million euros at this point, it was 50, 60, somewhere in that range. Um, I said to you, I don't think this is the right signing that United need. I could not have been proven more wrong. And I just want to come out flat and say that. I think Casemiro has been a wonderful signing. Not to say that, obviously, I never thought that he was a bad player. That he was part of a midfield trio that was one of the greatest of, of all time through Champions Leagues in a row, that doesn't, you know, go unnoticed. But I did think that it would have been the incorrect signing at the time for United. I thought there were other areas of the pitch, that back line. I also thought an aging defensive mid- midfielder 
um, is maybe not the direction that United should have gone. Completely wrong. And the last thing I'll say is Ten Hag said this in his post game after the Carabao Cup final. He said, you need players like Casemiro, like Varane, for example, who have come with the experience of winning these types of winning trophies in general and come with that sort of history because it changes the dynamic of the squad. And I, I genuinely think you saw that um, in their run up in the last, I'll call it two months. So Rian, uh, that long winded rant about United for a second, I want to ask you, how significant do you think this achievement is for, for Ten Hag to win his first trophy in this first season with Manchester United? Yeah, I think I think it's it's huge, obviously, right? It's the first one since 2017, which was the season they won the Europa League and the the League Cup under under Mourinho. <laughs> and that, that feels like age. I mean, it is ages ago. Paul Pogba was on that team. Like, Grant Healy left last summer, but Paul Pogba was playing a majority of games in that season for that team. Um, it's Really special, honestly. Like the, the the coaching job that he's done, that Tenog has done these last four months has has been really special. Like, I think that even though they didn't play necessarily well, like in this game, they you know they the two goals kind of come out of almost nothing. <laughs> like like the the first goal is uh, Casemiro with another very vital goal. Like, I think he's only scored a few of them this season, but I feel like all of them have been to take the lead in a game or draw a game. Uh, and that was obviously huge. And then the second goal is uh, an own goal. Uh, and once United got up, those two, they were really good, like, defensively, I think, throughout the game and good, particularly good after getting that second goal against Newcastle um, and really keeping Newcastle pretty, pretty... Um, powerless for for the rest of the game especially in the second half um so i think you got to give a lot of credit to the team and ten hog in terms of being able to get the team to a point where again we've talked about identity a few times this season but like this team very much is comfortable with how they play and everyone is playing in a position or like you said to their strengths and really like minimizing the weaknesses of this team uh, is what he's really is what he's done uh, throughout the season. So I think, I think it's really, really significant in the sense of it has been quite a turnaround from the first month and a half. Like, when United went one back in 2017, I think they ended up finishing second. Yep. Or, th or third, I, I can't. They, but they weren't anywhere close to the title, right? And and I, I don't think they're going to end up being super close to it this this year either. Well, but you never know. But go yeah, ahead. yeah. Look, they are, they are they're I think about eight points off right now. Yeah, I'm, just um, in terms of but, of league positioning, right? They're three points off uh, City. Yes, almost said. Off yeah, United, but yes. Yeah, yeah. They're three points off City. And, and while, while I don't think that they're ready to. Like, the team is not overall good enough to win the title right now. And I think a lot of United fans will probably say the same. But this title win feels – this trophy feels more significant than the two trophies that, that uh, Mourinho won in that, in that season because there appears to be more of a projection. You can actually – I feel you can project more – the success that this team will have compared to that um, Mourinho's team. Cause that one still had 
Ibrahimovic on the team. Yeah. Like that was that was still 37 year old Ibrahimovic, I think, was on that <laughs> team, right? And uh very different team that still had Matic starting in the midfield. And obviously, like Lingard was still on that team. Oh my gosh, I think Lingard is still on. No, Lingard's on. Lingard's on Nottingham Forest now. But I couldn't remember. I feel like he's aged only like two years in the last six. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was that was a remarkably different team, right? And and this team will obviously be different in a year or two, of course. But in terms of how they've already progressed from the beginning of the season. You feel like United has genuinely one of the best coaches in the league and one of the best coaches in Europe would probably say as well when you kind of factor in his time at Ajax and what they did in the Netherlands and also how well they performed in the Champions League under him. Um, They have one of the best coaches in Europe and they have young players in key positions, right? Like I think they still need to probably fill, they probably need a striker, they probably need um at least another center back and a fullback and probably another center midfielder like if, if to get to the level of where i think manchester city and arsenal are right now like that's kind of like the level they're trying to reach but you can see the building blocks right so i i, I think the the actual like winning of a trophy is is always very circumstantial right like it, and and winning a a, a final varying degrees of how well you have to actually play to do that but i think when you bring it all into context of where this team was at the in middle of october or middle of september I should say it's a huge achievement yep 100 percent agreed um they thoroughly i would say they played up to the standard that i believe that they are at now in terms of being a team that's probably one of the favorites to win the Europa League, absolutely favorites to finish in the top four. And conveniently enough, this will serve as a transition. But I do want to talk about that top four race now because Eddie Howe's side seemingly were in that race for large portions of the season so far. Now, we've seen them go on to drop points in back-to-back games in league games. They've obviously lost the the Carabao Cup final. I'm curious now what your take is on Newcastle and whether you're concerned about their top four push anymore, knowing, again, I I still think Alexander Isak's um, lack of availability has been one of the reasons why they've been been hurt so badly in terms of points lost. Because um, he, he came from Real Sociedad and immediately like was responsible for, I think, three or four points off the bat. Um, so I'm just curious to get your, your perspective, top four concerns for Newcastle. Yes. No. I think kind of like when we look at how they've performed on a whole this season, they've only lost twice. Then both those losses funny enough to Liverpool. Um, and they have the third best expected goal difference per game in the league right now. So as a whole, they've played to that level of a team, um, that you would expect to finish in, in the top four places, right? But the concern kind of comes with what we've seen after the World Cup, right? Um, they came back that first game. They just destroyed Leicester. It was a 3-0 win, and they looked 
awesome. I think they were up like two nil after eight minutes in that game. Um, they were fantastic, right? But a trend that I think we're starting to see more since we've come back from the World Cup is in the way that teams are defending Newcastle. If we look at the first 16 games before the World Cup, Newcastle had at least 60% of possession in only three games. They won two of them, then and they drew the other. Scored six goals on about 5.7 XG. Right? Since the World Cup, in the eight games um, since we've come back, they've already had possession, 60% possession, 60-plus percent possession, in five of those eight games. One win and four draws in those, and scored three goals on just under 8 XG. So the kind of big difference between those those two um, spans is that they're just not finishing, they're not converting their chances, right? And that is kind of where, what concerns me is that the teams up in that in the top four usually are are filled with like guys with good finish who are good finishers or at least a couple guys who are very very good finishers and um and can kind of win games at times can win games where the team doesn't play necessarily well and someone just has a great finish or there's a great final ball or or that kind of top top attacking talent that can carry you through difficult times in the season, right? And what concerns me for Newcastle is that as great as their play has been, like as the team play, you know, as these teams start to defend them differently and give them the ball a lot more and force them to have to create chances from very, very low defensive blocks and also to be really, really ruthless in the chances that they do create, I'm concerned about the attacking talent they have to actually you know as i said convert the chances create create the chances when it's really difficult and also converting them and and sometimes converting really really low level chances right um i I think that's kind of my, my biggest concern they're still great defensively but teams are are starting to defend them differently and it's really about how they either adapt to that or how they kind of step up in a sense of scoring away underperform. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and that's what they're at. And then that's kind of like always been the, that's always the thing under the surface with these teams that you don't expect them to be in this position. They play really, really well. And the question I always have in the back of my head is like, can this continue? Can like this, level of either whether it's on the defensive side or the attacking side like can this level of overperformance that we're seeing on whichever side of the ball can it continue and and um i'm not convinced i'll just say i'm not convinced that it'll continue for for newcastle so i do feel a bit concerned for them even though they have overall i think played as one of the four best teams in the league i think that's super fair i think um you basically gave the evidence for what I was trying to say with um, them missing Alexander Isak. I, I just, I, I feel like I can't stress enough how important he has been when he has been able to play. Unfortunately, some medium term injuries have, have greatly affected his availability. But when we talk about underperformance, 
we're talking about a striker for Real Sociedad, bar his last season that he was there, overperformed his XG in every season. So that's kind of like, in, obviously it's not as simple as you put overperforming striker into an underperforming expected goal output team. Like it's obviously not that simple, but in terms of taking that step from sixth to fourth, potentially, that could mean a complete world of difference for them right now. Um, so I, I agree with that entirely. I, I do want to shift focus, however, to a, a team that underperformance isn't even the word I'm going to use anymore. At, at this point, this team is just uh, a poo-poo, as they say. Um, I'm sorry that you have to watch this team. And I, I, of course, am coming from a Barcelona perspective, so I have to even apologize even more that you have to watch this team. I Fun fact, I made a dollar off of this game, not betting on like a betting site, just betting with a friend that Chelsea would lose to Spurs. Um, Chelsea have historically not lost to Spurs. If you look at historical record, Chelsea have done a very good job of at least getting a draw and some pretty big wins as well. Um, (laughs) This was like staggeringly poor from Chelsea. Staggeringly poor. I, I was even like surprised at how poor they were. I thought against Dortmund, for example, they showed up. I thought maybe not against Southampton, but I thought yeah. I thought I <laughs> definitely I thought, not against Southampton. No, not against, I was trying to I was trying to give you guys some semblance of hope, <laughs> but I couldn't do it. Um, I really want to talk about the Spurs game because everything from the press to the build up off all of it. Players were disjointed. The structure was disjointed your wingers have decided that they don't want to show up. I mean, some of them don't even want to play for Chelsea anymore. Um, that's of course a ZX joke, but anyway, just tell me what your thoughts are on Chelsea right now after this performance, maybe specifically about this performance. Cause you gave me your thoughts about the team last week. I want to know about this performance specifically and what stood out to you. I mean, it's, it's really not that much different than the Southampton game. Um, the, the team can't create the team can't create chances still <laughs> even though i'm now i am fairly positive that the, that they have the players to create chances and maybe they did before too but i mean more the players in in key positions to create chances um it, it's it was it was very similar to the southampton game the the build up very inconsistent like sometimes it was slow, sometimes it's fast, uh, but there's no consistency really to how the team plays in possession. It's a lot of um, give it to Enzo, give it to Jao Felix, and let them cook. And and it would be awesome if like I, I look, I love watching them both cook. I look, like, I'm still winning. I'm still winning here. I still never lost, right? But <laughs> but. But the uh, tough part is, you know, if Jao Felix was messy right now, we'd be, they'd be much things would be much better. Letting him cook would be the <laughs> would be the right thing to do. But unfortunately, this team needs a bit more structure to it. Um, and I, I, I'm at the point. I said it last week. I think he needs. I think he give him till the rest of the season, to the end of the season. I, I, I don't, I don't see any 
positives really with sacking him because I don't think this changes at all for really for like, like no matter who comes in, uh, we could literally have young Sir Alex Ferguson come back, come here and, and, and it's, it's still going to be a bit of a mess, but uh, I, I think it's, it's just concerning that after about a month of having these new players in, uh, it's still hard to tell like how the team is going to play from game to game. And um, I, I think it's hard to put it all on the, on the coaching as well. Right. It's because I, I do under I do sympathize with the fact that now they have like, thir- I think it's 30 odd players on the first team in these trading sessions. And that um, there's been some reports come out that, that it's changed how Potter and his staff run the training sessions because they have so many players, right? But um, I, I, the other side of it is, you know, it feels like easier said than done, but like you're the coach and if there are players that you don't want, that you don't expect to play or don't feel like are part of the long-term future of the of the, the team, um, you don't really have any obligation to play. Uh, we, we've had Hakim Ziyech start, it, it feels like at least three, four games since since that failed move to PSG. And if the reasoning is, you know, to, I get it from a personal, per, like human level, like of keeping him involved and whatnot. Um, that's what Super Soaps are for. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I would argue, correct. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it, it, he doesn't seem like he's that much happier, <laughs> and at the same time, these performances aren't raising his value. So it's it's pretty uh, – it's little things like that where it feels like Potter is trying to not upset anyone right now. And the other side of it is like the most important thing that, that at least I feel for the team going forward now is like figuring out who is going to – what are, what is the team going to look like in a in a year? How are we going to play in a year, and in, in or in, in six months, or was what does the, the best lineup look like in in whatever by the end of the season, whatnot? And it, and it feels like wasting a bit of time to keep some guys happy. Um, like the I did the Aubameyang sub was hilarious. Honestly, yeah, the, I mean hilarious. he he's he's literally stood up and Spurs scored their second goal. Yeah. It was it was too The fact that he was coming incredible. on was hilarious in the first place. Yeah. Uh, and you know, but it, it, last Chelsea point because we should talk about the team that actually won this game and the team that actually is not in the mid table. Um it, it's just yeah, I, I've seen here and there some people bring up like the oh well, Aubameyang should start more and like why is that sorry anymore? And it's just like I did do people have amnesia of this entire season where he started like most of the first half of the season and was terrible after like the first couple games. Like I I get it. The guy who's not playing is always is always like the best player on the team, right? In in fans' opinions. The guy who's by not playing you always look better when the team is not performing well. But let's let's kind of be let's 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 be for I'm, real about about these about, about what Aubameyang has been for nine months. Yeah, just get the timeline right because before he came to Chelsea, loved him, 
<laughs> I, I had no problems <laughs> with him for a short stint. But but to your point, let, let us actually talk about Spurs because we could talk about Chelsea in a completely separate podcast alone. Um, this is now, what, three games in a row with wins for Spurs? Am I getting that right? Or It's uh, two, two out of the two in a row, the, um, but three out of the last four. There you go. I got my order wrong. But nonetheless, a good run of form for Spurs. Obviously, they did lose to Milan in the in the Champions League and, and that second round is coming up next week. But since excuse me, since then, or since they're they're lost to Leicester, right? We've had a two 0 win against West Ham, a two 0 win against Chelsea now, and then I believe they have their FA Cup game against Sheffield United tomorrow, at least at the time of recording. Do you think that this was a big confidence boost, for example, for for Spurs? Do you see them as potential Champions League candidates for next season? Do you see that? Because if you think about it, right, their competition here is is the Newcastle. The Newcastle is Newcastle, not the Newcastle, but you, you get my point. Yeah, look, I said it maybe it was last week or two weeks ago that the kind of the way I see the rest of the season going from, from Spurs point of view is they'll be kind of in and around that, that fourth place position. And the, by the nature of the concerns I already laid out for Newcastle, um, honestly, similar concerns for on the Brighton side too, as they've kind of reverted back to creating a lot and not scoring, <laughs> which, which is their heritage, unfortunately. But um, their, their competition are, are those two teams, and then maybe we'll get some sort of late push from Liverpool. Like, like the, but the the overall point is that by default they might they might end up finishing fourth because the competition below third place is really not that high, honestly. Um, <laughs> like even even Spurs haven't been that great, haven't been great this season, right? Uh, their best chance of of that game again, the Chelsea game, came through their corner. It was the second goal that 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 Kane scored. Like the first goal was a a, a good shot by Ali Skip, a bad save attempt by by Kepa, but uh, overall they didn't create that much in that game both teams finished at below 1xg it was it was not a good game and, and it was not like anyone was particularly good so it was just it wasn't it wasn't as bad as the the Chelsea Liverpool game though that was no correct it was not as bad as that I mean I, I also watched the Liverpool Crystal Palace game on Saturday too which was terrible which was absolutely terrible too uh but Neither here nor there. Like, that was their, that was that was sort of his best chance of the game. Came through a corner, which you know they're the best team in the league at scoring corners. Like they have twelve goals, twelve set piece goals um, scored this season, and and better than anyone else in the Premier League. But um, it's it, it's really not unthinkable to see them finishing fourth. Like five thirty eight has them projected to finish fourth as well. At the same time, you look at this team and you look at the underlying performance, like their, their expected goal difference is seventh in the league. They're behind Newcastle, Brighton and Liverpool in those, in those stats. And then, you know, they, they're just good enough, I think, to finish fourth, but I, I, I don't feel like they're the fourth best. They might have, no. the, I don't feel like they're the fourth best team, but they have enough talent to finish fourth in this particular season. I completely agree. 
I I'm curious. Genuinely, I, I don't know the answer to this question. I I could definitely look into it, but how many points alone Harry Kane has gotten Spurs this season? Because it is now his ninth season in a row with twenty plus goals in the Premier League, which is outrageous. Like I, I think we sometimes forget how clinical of a striker he really is. Like, sure, you could penalty, blah blah, blah whatever. Fuck off. Like <laughs> that's an outrageous record. Um, so I'm I'm very curious. I think about how much point value does Harry Kane and specifically the goals he scored the season have? And then more importantly, what has Hungman's son's dip in form done to this team in terms of um, potential points gained in, in games that they probably should have, or could have gotten points from the season. Cause they, other than that, while their XG difference might not necessarily be different, the number of goals they scored very well could have been. And as we know, this game is not played on a stat sheet, it's played on the field. And so I, in some ways I almost hope, well, I obviously hope he gets back to form, but I, I'm very curious to see if that changes between now and the end of the season, specifically like Hung, Hungman Sun's form. Um, and is there still a reliance on Harry Kane? I, w- I would say there's, there's always a reliance on him. Regardless, oh, definitely, but. definitely. They've, there's always been the reliance on him, and yeah. in the past seasons, there's been a reliance on him and Hungman Son, right? And, and look, they they would have relied on Hungman Son this season too, if if um his kind of sh- shooting goal scoring form specifically hasn't and hasn't hadn't fallen off kind of a cliff for him uh, historically. We mentioned it uh, a few weeks ago where this is really the first season that he's underperforming his, his XG, which, uh, which honestly could mean something good for next season that, that it kind of all comes back around in terms of that, uh, whole, um, regression to the mean. Right. Uh, but for this season, it's been huge. Like that's, that's got, that's the biggest reason why they're so far off. So, so far off first place, of course, but also, not convincingly in, in fourth place uh, right now. So, yeah, it's a big miss. It's a big miss. Um, Hungman Son's drop in form this season, but. Yeah, 100%. Um, Rian, I do want to move on and talk about some of the flowers you would like to hand out um, across the league. I see you've listed Phil Foden um, against Bournemouth as yours. Not, well, he scored the second goal. I forget. Mm-hmm. I forget. Which goal it was? Yeah, I think it was the second goal, which was, which was yeah. outstanding. Yeah. <laughs> and his assist was outstanding to to um, Holland. Yes. Uh, yeah, Phil Foden, who, who weirdly has not played as many games as you would have expected. I think he's only started fifteen games this season, um, and some some of that is things he was injured for a little bit, but also. You know, Pep decided sometime in the last month or so that Mares and Grealish are the wingers that he wants to play with, specifically with Holland, and it's left Phil Foden out, uh, which is quite surprising. But not they have so much talent anyway, so I guess you can't be a hundred percent surprised. But Foden for the last three years has been one of their three best three four best players especially attacking wise so it's it's times like this past saturday that you're reminded 
wow, yeah, this guy is a is a gem of a player, right? He had that he goal twice today as well in the FA yeah. Cup against Bristol City. Yep. So yeah, um, but against Bournemouth, he had that goal and an assist. Had eleven shot creating actions, uh, seven key passes. That. Yeah, seven key passes. And what was honestly most fascinating for me is that he also had a game high 19 progressive pass receptions. Very, very different style to uh, Grealish and Mares, who are guys who don't make those runs in behind very much. It's not it's not really their game. They're they like the ball to feet. They like to cut inside a lot and they're very much a safer option when you when you're talking about just having possession, right? And you want to consolidate your possession and and I'm and I'm assuming that for Pepe's try to think about like how can we get how can we create as many opportunities for us to play a ball to Holland or you know, opportunities for us to get into the final third and just and be able to control the game from that final third. Foden offers something completely different. As you saw for, um, I think it was Fo- not Foden's, uh, Holland's goal, where he makes that run behind. I can't remember who played the perfect pass to him, and then he passes it across to, to Holland. But that's what he offers. He offers that option to run in behind and stretch the, the defense in a much, much different way than Mares and uh, Grealish do. So I, I, I'm really interested to see if, off the backs of these two performances, if it changes how Pep kind of looks at the way the team attacks for the rest of the season. Because what we also saw against Bournemouth is Julian Alvarez play as well. And, and that is really interesting to me, too. If he offers something different and he can kind of play as that second striker with Holland and Holland doesn't have to necessarily touch the ball that much. It's not as much of a it doesn't feel as weird when Holland doesn't touch the ball as much, I feel like, when when you have Alvarez in there. Yeah, the the interesting thing with um the relationship between Holland and the other attackers, right? Let's focus on Foden and Julian Alvarez because you mentioned them. Holland is still, I think, trying to find his way in this system. And I think more importantly, Pep is trying to f- find out how he best fits into to Manchester City because they are playing slightly differently than they were last season with having him as a true out-and-out number nine, right? More balls over the top, less runs coming off of kind of angled passes that you'd see Kevin De Bruyne making. But what I think is really interesting is Holland's relationship on the field with Foden, I think, is much more intertwined than it is with Grealish and Gundogan. Maybe Am I stating the obvious a little bit? Maybe. But what I mean by that is Phil Foden making second um, second man runs behind uh, Erling Holland is so much more lethal now because of Erling Holland because defenders have to track him that much closer because there has to be an extra focus and that split second decision where you lose track of that second man runner is where Phil Foden thrives. Gundogan thrives in that maybe outside of the box, but Grealish doesn't really take up that role, right? He's kind of isolated a little bit more to the left-hand side and will cut in, but Phil Foden plays that central tennis type of role. And I think that's going to help him probably score more goals throughout the rest of the season. If Manchester city decide to continue playing that same, that same way. Um, or at least for example, how we played against Bournemouth. So I did love his performance. Um, and I love that you shout out Julian Alvarez as well. Cause I think he is quietly 
having himself a very fine season. Obviously, World Cup and everything, yes, but um, club-wise as well. Yeah. Um, shall we move on next to something I highlighted over the weekend on Twitter? <laughs> just a, a fantastic defensive performance from Arsenal. Yeah, I, I sent you this, I think, um, from one of the, the XG like calculation type of accounts on Twitter. This is the first time ever, I believe, at least since XG has been like started started being recorded um, in recent history, that 0.0 XG was accumulated in a Premier League match. 0. 0.00, right? Let me go to the hundreds, not even just the tens. <laughs> I mean, do you? I'm curious if you put that down to Arsenal's defensive structure and how well they press now, or were Leicester just that bad? I, it's always like a bit of a bit of both, but I, I do put more of this on Arsenal's defensive structure. Like the amount of times where you watch that game, like Leicester completely unable to get out. Um, they didn't have their first shot in the game, their only shot in the game, until the 72nd minute, which was a Drewsbury Hall shot from 29 yards out. And that's where you get like that 0 0.01 or 2 or, uh, XG that, 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 that uh, Leicester accumulated in the game. And kind of to like bring it to another level of like, yes, that, they, they got that one shot. Um, and this was how dominant Arsenal were in terms of like not even allowing Lester to get into that to those areas into like closer areas really to to be able to get shots off. If you exclude crosses, Lester completed just two passes within twenty yards of Arsenal's goal. <laughs> oh my god, that's outrageous! <laughs> it, it, it's just a fantastic performance. Uh, you you saw again what I thought Virginia was fantastic again in that game. Uh, I, I think on the defensive side this time, because I think what is underappreciated about Jorginho's defensive game is the intelligence that he has. You see it a lot in his passing and, and going forward, right? But the intelligence that he has in terms of stepping into passing lanes and blocking it off from the other opponent, from the opponent or blocking the ball, getting interceptions. It really shines through when you watch, especially in these types of games, when you watch a game where the team, where the team he's on is very good at like actually retaining possession, right? It's, or I should say like recovering possession. I thought that Georgina was fantastic again. And I thought as a whole Arsenal, the defensive performance was just so, so good. And and yes, they didn't create a lot. I th they think they ended up under one XG. Um, and they did. They tried out the Trossard and Martinelli playing at the same time where like they both just kind of kept interchanging and the, from that left wing to false nine kind of position. And uh, I think you could say the results were mixed at best for the, from the from attacking point of view, but they end up getting the goal and all that matters is getting the points, right? So defensively they were fantastic and 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 that was a good response i think from their last few games where i thought that defensively they 
had dropped their levels a little bit. Um, and I, this, that was encouraging, I think, to see from from a defensive point of view for Arsenal. Like, extremely encouraging. They were, that's, like I said, I think that's one of the best defensive performances you'll see in Europe this season. 100%. And I'll, I'll just add to your Jorginho point, um, point that you made. He, he didn't have the highest number of uh, interceptions specifically on the team, but between tackles and interceptions, highest in the team during this game, he had, uh, I believe, a majority of them were in the, not only the, 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 that, <laughs> the defensive third, um, but also in, in the middle third of the pitch as well to show that he was sort of everywhere. And then from a passing perspective, I believe he had the highest number of passes, maybe just beat out by Saliba. I have to double check that, but um, one of the highest number of passes on the team and I could double check his completion percentage, but I'm sure it was fantastic as well. So I think a very, very good point. Um, just with Jorginho, he, he deserves his, his flowers specifically. <sighs> Who knew I would be giving a former top three Ballon d'Or candidate in Jorginho uh, <laughs> this sort of hype. But anyway, did I do a good job? Do I get enough credit for that? Oh, yeah. Look, <laughs> honestly, if you, you say that, it makes it sound like you're pretty late on giving him the credit. But... <laughs> well, you know my thoughts on that Ballon d'Or, but uh, I doubt uh, yeah. Yes. Ah, so you agree that the Ballon d'Or <laughs> means nothing and the voting is <laughs> is shoddy at best. Got it. That I'm, glad we, I'm, glad we, I'm glad we got to that to that conclusion. That Ballon d'Or mean nothing. <laughs> Are you happy with yourself? Do you go to sleep at night thinking I've I've succeeded in my mission to piss off Elias? Okay. We're gonna move on to the disappointments, which might be you. Um, no, it's let's talk about what you have listed as a, as one of the disappointments. It's actually off the back of a very, um, or back off the, the team that we were just talking about in Leicester. Um, are they are they in trouble right now? I mean, they're not Leeds, but or, or Everton, mind you, but they are two points off the drop zone right now. Yeah, it's kind of like sneaky. Like, they they were they were in that uh, top position earlier in the season too. I think they dropped into the relegation zone if I remember correctly earlier in the season. But yeah, they're they're close. There's a lot of teams down there now that are within a few points of each other. Basically, you go from like 13th down, and and any one of those teams feel like they, with a bad run, could fall into the bottom three at some point uh and for Leicester it's pretty concerning because they have the fourth worst expected goal difference per game in the league uh they've conceded the third most goals and the third most expected goals allowed and they're being pretty much carried by their finishing um to to even be outside of the relegation zone because they're about eight about eight over eight plus goals over their expected goal um, accumulation. So yeah, I, I think they're, they play Southampton next, a, a draw or a loss in that game. And I think you'll hear the conversation come up again of, you know, are they, are they going to get relegated? I mean, um, if it's, if, especially because of their opponent more than anything. Exactly. Else, right. Like exactly. that's the, the biggest thing. Cause you're then you are relegation. Bound. Not relegation bound, but you are relegation form. That's what I'm trying. Yeah, to fully, fully. And oh, look, as I was saying, like any of those teams in that 13th, 14th range down, 
it's in the spot right now. And, and look, we've seen it. We see it in La Liga as well right now. But one point from two or three games, and there you're right there. You're basically like you're either tied on points, or you're only a point above, or you're in the relegation zone. That's what's so so difficult about this point in the season when there's like only a four point gap between basically six positions. It could one one match day goes one way or the other. And I think that's what it's going to come down to by the end of the, the league, the league campaign. Um, same with La Liga to your point. The, the caveat to all of that is slipping up in multiple games in a row also is dependent on the teams below you outperforming you. And I don't know if that necessarily is going to be the case. I don't know if Everton or Leeds or Southampton are necessarily going to perform better than Leicester right now. But I firmly do believe that Leicester will continue to slip up um, throughout the rest of the season. I just don't know if it will be enough to actually put them in the relegation zone. Yeah, I, I think ultimately they'll be okay. I'll always go just the talent. Is is too good to go it's, down. It's, it's my rule. It's my rule. <laughs> yeah, the town's too good. Um, but look, they're they're not playing like a team that um deserves to be safe from relegation uh, discussions. Completely agree. Look at us. We can agree on something outside the Ballon d'Or. Anyway, um, all right, Rian, let's take a quick break. We'll be back. We'll talk the rest of footy going on in Europe. And uh, I will yell at Rian while we stop recording. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. As you can potentially hear, I'm a little under the weather. I have been this entire time we've been recording. But we're talking about Liga. We're talking everything in Spain. And Rian, one of the things that I realized uh, on Saturday, which was, of course, the Madrid Derby, these, these matches in the Madrid Derby are never entertaining. Like there, it, it's not classical level of interest. I mean, interest, yes, but entertainment, no. And historically, has not been that way. It's historically been a low xG performing um, matchup in several of the last seasons. It, quite frankly, it's not boring, but it's not it's not fun. <laughs> it just it isn't. I don't know how to to explain it. Um, Real Madrid and Atletico, of course, drawing one one. Um, like I mentioned last time, Real Madrid have only lost one of their last 14 games against Atletico, which was last May. Um, in La Liga specifically, I should specify. Six wins, seven draws, and two basically identical goals. But outside of that, I don't have much else to report. Alvaro Rodriguez became the, uh, the youngest player score in uh, Madrid Derby in La Liga this century. Previous holder was Gonzalo Higuain. That's about it. Unless you want to talk about Angel Correa getting a red card, which was iffy at best, in my opinion. Um, do you have anything to take away from this? Because really, it was not that fun. <laughs> yeah, I I missed I missed all up until uh, Atletico's goal. I, I missed. So I tuned in. I was lucky. I got to see the last two goals <laughs> in the last like 10, 15 minutes. Um, so I look, the game was great from my point of view. Not a snooze fest at all. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, you are lucky. No, no like, like, this is just about what we expect from that. Uh, these, this game is 
very, very rarely more than two goals. Like it feels like that very, very rarely, almost never more than three, but uh, yeah, look, it's Madrid are in a very interesting spot right now. And, and look, they've probably been in the spot for the last two to three years where their squad is not good enough to last an entire season to go through a 38 game campaign and be consistent and play well enough to win a league. Their starting 11 players are good enough to win one-off games against very, very high level opponents when the motivation is as high as it possibly could be. And the stakes are as high as they possibly can be. And, you know, go on and literally win a Champions League, right? It's just this weird dilemma with this team. And they're, every time I look at their bench, <laughs> every time I've looked at their bench in the last two years, I, I've like literally thought, like, really? This is the bench? This is Real Madrid's bench? They went from having, they went from having to pick between Gareth Bale and Angel Di Maria like seven, eight years ago as their, like, left-wing options, to now it's, like, if Vinny's not in, then you're kind of shit out of luck. Um, although Rodrigo, I think, has been good this season. But it, it's really, really slim pickings, I think, from a depth point of view. And we know that their fans ultimately really care the most about Champions League in Europe anyway. But... It, it's. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna keep saying it un, until I'm finally. Until yeah, you know, I'm literally like in the ground. I guess <laughs> this overall squad is not. It's very good. It's not great. It's not sustainable. I just this. I still That's just don't think this squad. I just don't think this team is sustainable still. And. um Look, I, I'll happily continue to be proved wrong because when they do prove me wrong, it's from just like exceptional play, exceptional levels of, of soccer, which is just beautiful to watch. So, so I'm okay with being wrong in that sense. But um, I, I just I just don't see how this team gets better <laughs> like, like throughout the rest of this season and next season. You know, obviously, we the summer transfer window, any who knows what happens in that sense. But um, outside of like a killing Mbappe kind of signing that, that would, would bring their team to obviously another level, but um, they, there needs to be a lot of work done on this squad. And if it's, if not, then, then I, I just don't see how they keep sustaining this level. And I'd, I honestly, I think they realize they probably can't because at some point, Tony Kroos, Luka Modric, Benzema, they're all going to go at relatively the same time. And when that happens, you have to fill that void. And I think they've tried to with signing Kamavinga, Chuameni, obviously Vinny Jr. and Rodrigo. The problem is they're not at that level yet. And that's okay. Like that is okay. But you do need to increase the depth leading up to that point in which they eventually leave. And I think that's part of why you're potentially seeing them net what is with what is now a seven point gap 
in between first and second in La Liga. Could that very well change between now and the end of the season? Absolutely. Could probably change the next couple of weeks. But I very much believe that, like you, Real Madrid are in a position where they need to reinforce probably this summer. And I'm not saying now is do or die because we've <laughs> we've figured out the, the formula here is never right out Real Madrid. But in terms of long-term sustainability and success, they have to do it this summer. Um, I'm very curious to see how much time some more of these youth players do get Alvaro being a really good example of that in the Madrid Derby, because that I, I will say, I will say this before we move on to the next point, youth players coming through the system and playing in the first team outside of, let's say like La Masia or big academies like Bill Bowes, et cetera, that happens more out of necessity than it does just wanting to give players opportunity. And I think Real Madrid are in that position where they're leaning towards potentially needing some of these younger players to step up, quite frankly, because they're not in the middle of a summer transfer window. And while there are planning for it, there are immediate goals at Real Madrid, win every trophy, trophy possible. And if a youngster is what helps you get there, Alvaro, your time to shine, right? So I, I completely agree with you. Um, not that I want them to succeed and reinforce any of this, but you know, they will. So uh, can only can only do so much. <laughs> but on uh, the last point, at least, Rian, on Atletico, do you think their title chances are just shot at this point? You don't really see it? No, I, I don't see it. I, I, I think it's going to take a, you know, either a huge inju- a string of injuries or – uh, just, just so, so uh, something monumental for Atletico to re- to catch Barcelona. I think I think it'll be similarly difficult for Real Madrid to catch them, but um, from I mean, an Atletico point of view, I think all they care about this season is finishing fourth, is finishing in the top four. I mean, uh, and they're in a pretty good position to do that. They've they've stabilized. They've really stabilized over the last month or so, and um, they definitely have. They're very yeah. difficult to beat again. Yeah, the the tricky part for them is uh, Atletico are so interesting. They're always, at least not always, but in the last couple of years, been surrounded by Sociedad and Real Betis. Real Betis are on a, a streak of three of their last three won. Um, Atletico have won two out of their last three. Atletico are only up by two points on Betis, and they're sitting in fourth place. I just... I don't think it's as clear cut for top four right now for Atletico because yeah. they slip up in one game and it could, it could, it's, it's not fully in their control anymore. I think that's a yeah. scary place for Simeone this, this late in the season, this late in the season, not say that yeah. it's late. We're only like a little past halfway, but um, just keeping that in mind, I guess the, the caveat to that is uh, Betis now have to go and play United in the Europa league. So that will certainly take energy away from them and they play Real Madrid next United Villarreal United again and then they play Atletico a couple like two weeks later so that string of games is going to be really 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 brutal for Pellegrini yeah and I mean the biggest news to come out of the last few days with them Naba Fakir tearing his ACL tearing another ACL yeah yeah that's a massive I mean we could talk about, yeah, I feel like people have heard us talk about Nabil Fikir for for a very long time. So I, I don't think there's a need to 
to go through that and explain just how incredibly important he is. So um, with that, Rian, let's shift focus towards some of the good things that happened in La Liga this past weekend. Villarreal bouncing back, 2-1 win against Hetafe. Uh, Villarreal are, again, I can't, I can't sometimes explain Kike Setien. There are times where I'm really confused by him because they had lost, I believe it was four, or their last four um, matches in La Liga. It was not pretty. Um, but coming out with a 2-1 win against Hetafe and what was a pretty good performance, I would say, for them, their standout has really been, at least in the last couple of weeks, especially since the World Cup, I'll say, Chukweze, one of my favorite players in La Liga and certainly one of my favorite African players in La Liga, for sure. Um, he's now the third joint highest scoring African player, by the way. Um, well, I should say goal contribution, not just uh, not just goals. Up there with Inyaki Williams, and I believe, um, forgetting someone else, but in, up there with Inyaki Williams, and it's his second time scoring back-to-back -back La Liga games in his entire career. So um, he, I really do want to see him, quite honestly, I hate to say this, um, play for like a top six side somewhere in Spain or somewhere in England. I, like, for example, I feel like he could fit in really well as a super sub for uh, Zaha at Crystal Palace. Like knowing what Zaha's injury record Great has job. been this season, I feel like that would legitimately be like the perfect um, substitute. But anyway, I, I, I would be very curious to see if any clubs in the summer start thinking about him or putting in a bid for him, anything like that. But I, I, I just love everything about his, his play. I think he might have the Debele issue of losing the ball every <laughs> once in a while a little too often. But other than that, big fan. Yeah, no, I, I like that shot for Crystal Palace. I mean, the guy's just really fun to watch on the ball, right? He's second in La Liga in successful take-ons and eighth in the league in terms of carries into the penalty area as well. So like, he's, you'd love to see the output, you know, obviously raise a bit. I think it's three goals and three assists this season. But from, uh, like, effect on the actual act of getting getting into the penalty area and and just kind of progressing the ball forward specifically he's been really really exciting and fun to watch love it love it i do have to um to mention uh just villarreal's ability to really come back in these and lose from losing positions it's something that's been like starkly I don't even know how to explain it. It's just very unique to Villarreal this season. They've won more points from losing positions than every other team in La Liga, other than Girona. A total of 10 points they've picked up from losing positions, and six of them have come from being under Setien. So it almost behooves them to start off from losing positions in certain scenarios. I will say, I will still never understand how they lost to Elche at the beginning of February. Like, I think they lost 3 1. Um, that was a game, funny enough, they were losing and could not come back from. Um, so it just, Villarreal are a really weird team in that way. Sometimes I don't understand them because they do have quality players. But I, I'll leave it at this point before we go on to the next one. They are so desperately in need of Gerard Moreno at all times. Like he is so clearly superior to everyone else in this team and you need him in order to be successful. I'll, I'll just throw that out there. 
Um, anyway, Rian, let's shift focus. Let's talk a little bit about a different team in La Liga, a team that we briefly talked about last weekend uh, for off-the-field reasons. But for on-the-field reasons, Valencia have picked up their first win in what feels like bajillion years. <laughs> they they went ahead and actually beat Real Sociedad of all teams. And I did not expect this to, to be the case. But actually, I can't even remember the last time they won in La Liga. I know they've won in like the Copa del Rey and, and whatnot. But um, I, I believe it's been a very long time since they, they, they won La Liga. It was, I watched this game too. It, this was the first time like all season, I feel like I've seen Mestaya like up and cheering and like happy, like for all the off the issue, off the field issues they've been having. Like this was fantastic for them. Own goal. Who cares? <laughs> it doesn't matter how they want. They'll take it and run. Um, so I think that was a, a run of five, at least five consecutive defeats in La Liga which uh, is relegation form for them. And they are still very much in call a spade a spade, a relegation battle. But this it's moments like these that could really change how an entire season goes for you. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. Their first, they lost five in a row coming into this. This is their first win in La Liga since November. Oh my God. I wasn't sure. I honestly wasn't sure when it was because I knew it was certainly before the World Cup. But that is, wow. I can't even wow. imagine what it's like being Yunus Musa, for example, <laughs> trying to play through this. Like, that's, that is so difficult. But yes, shout out to Valencia. I still, look, one of the things that we talked about a little bit last weekend, uh, or not last weekend, but uh, last week, was how does, like, especially right now, uh, with Gattuso being gone, how does Baraja coach this team? Like, how do you, like, he has not historically been a successful coach. He has not stayed in a position for more than like nine months at a time. So is this really Valencia's knight in shining armor? I'm not saying he is. In fact, I would probably still argue he isn't. But now I'm curious with that potential change of momentum. Could be. Very well could be. Yeah. Look, now that they've got to string together multiple games of getting, not necessarily getting wins, but getting points. Right. Like, they haven't even, they haven't even picked up points in two straight games since November, <laughs> right? So insane. They need to get points right now. Like it's a lot of losses here, <laughs> uh, a lot, a lot, and, and it's just it's just been a complete fall off since since coming back from the World Cup. So yeah, they've got to find a way to turn it around. Yeah. Well, last um, flower or bouquet that I would like to hand out would be to Osasuna. Um, Osasuna have an incredible home record. El Sadar is notoriously a difficult place to go. But one of my favorite parts about this Osasuna team, A, they're in the semifinal of a Copa del Rey. Jot that down. But they also are one of the best defensive sides, I think, with one of the best center backs in La Liga in David Garcia. It's a player that I haven't talked about, I think, enough on the podcast, Rion. But he, in my opinion, is making his case to be one of the center backs of the year in La Liga, for sure. He scored more goals <laughs> with uh, all headers, by the way, than any other player in La Liga since like the early 2000s. I think he scored eight goals from headers just this season alone. And he's kept seven clean sheets this season. For a team that currently, at least in the league, is sitting in eighth, that's that's eighth place record, or eighth place um, 
form, right? Solidly mid-table slash looking upwards. Not saying they're going to make Europe in (laughs) any capacity. They very well could. But he's, for me, been the standout player. And I don't know if you have any stats at all to to back me up. I'm sure you might in your handy-dandy notebook. But um, I will at least say that Osasuna, especially off the back of their um, last-minute win, courtesy of Barcelona youth product Abde against Sevilla over the weekend, um, just goes to show that they, they very well could make a European push. Yeah, I didn't no no like huge overarching like um big stats here, but it it is funny to me that their expected goal difference is exactly zero. They're perfectly balanced. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, That's and I mean, their goal difference is only minus one, so they're almost like perfect. <laughs> oh man, it, so that that I find that funny. It's the perfect team. <laughs> like this is this is the type of team Rion would look at and be like, ah, "This is all things are equal." Like, what's that Thanos meme where he's sitting and like, ah. yeah, "Perfectly balanced, everything per- <laughs> as, as all be. things should be." There you yeah. go. There you go. So that's my last um, my last bouquet, as you if you will, that I'd like to give out. And then just quickly, very quickly, going through the disappointments Rion, because I wanted to punch a wall this weekend. I was horizontal most of Sunday, as I told you about being sick with a cold. Um, what the actual fuck did I watch on Sunday with this Barcelona <laughs> team? What the actual fuck? Like, truly, I, I watched Crossan and Shanla all over again. It was horrible. It was like I was watching Ronald Koeman coach this team again. 47 crosses against an Almeria side, which we lost to for the first time ever. Highest tally of crosses in a single away game in, in the league since 2005-2006. We've also failed to win all five of those games, fun fact, where we've crossed that like over like 40 times. Um, I don't, I would, <laughs> but coming into this game, I just didn't enjoy say, watching Ferran Torres cross it almost like 20 times. Brother, <laughs> he has been, he's actually been in good form. And that's what saddens me the most is that eh, I can't, I can't with this team. I, this was a real test for them, by the way, after going out against United, a test of just character. This was a team where Almeria have the second worst defensive record in La Liga. They've conceded three goals a game on average. And what, what, uh, I, I, I truly give up. I will say, (laughs) I will say two things and then I'll hand it over to you. There's a, there is something to really to be said here about Barcelona Barcelona with Pedri and without Pedri. I've talked about this a couple weeks ago. They've won 73% of their games with Pedri in La Liga since his, his first season, which was a couple years ago, and only 45% without him. Pedri Dependentia is a very real thing now. There's no way around it. And you look at the depth of this midfield, and you think you've got Pedri, Gavi, Busquets, Frankie de Jong, and then Kessie and Sergio Roberto. That that isn't going to cut it. Obviously, you have Pablo Torre, et cetera, but not really significant playing time to justify bringing that up here. Um, that's not good depth. That's not good depth for Europe. That's barely enough good depth for La Liga, but the starters in this midfield are carrying them. And then the last thing, Lewandowski. 25 goals in 31 matches, 100% love that. Very, very good output, but... I, I I need more in crucial moments. I don't know what else to tell you. 
Um, we saw it against Inter. We saw it against Bayern, one of the worst misses I've seen from him specifically as well. Um, against United, like that that can't that can't be a thing. I'm I was so frustrated after this game. I was literally I was sick and horizontal. <laughs> I was pissed. I just wanted the the day to end. Go ahead. I digress. <laughs> no, no, I don't don't have much to add in terms of like the Barcelona. Well, in terms of the, this game specifically. But you kind of bring up that point of the the depth for Barcelona and, and considering the conversation we had about Madrid earlier, it's just kind of bringing me back to the, <laughs> I mean, basically the thing that those two clubs are fighting for right now, which is the Super League. Um, the depth, not only from Barcelona and Real Madrid, but if you look at a lot of the historically top, top clubs in Europe, so like outside of maybe, maybe outside of Bayern potentially, and even even Bayern's depth I don't think is is uh, exceptional, but that is where you're seeing the real kind of uh, significance of what has, has been happening with the the money that that the teams in the Premier League have been making and and spending uh, over the last couple years is that there is not nearly that level of depth past the starting 11 for the top top clubs anymore uh outside of outside of England so i mean th- this is just this is just another couple of examples that we talked about today for with Barcelona and Real Madrid and uh it's yeah not 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 super insightful but it's just kind of another feather if you want to say feather in the cap of of an argument for for the uh, super league from those clubs that that need and want it the most one of these days i do want to do maybe towards the end of the season an episode on the super league and what what that kind of new reformed kind of super league that has recently come out looks like versus the coming format of the champions league expanding in a couple of years which is questionable at best <laughs> sounds but- like a great one for for end of the season like, yeah that one the the new format i believe kicks in in 2024 yes i believe that's the case but we'll we'll confirm that in the off season which i'm sure there'll be more changes so anyway that's it for me um from the disappointments in la liga just my stupid team um that's all i got thank you as always people for for listening and tuning in and watching potentially if you're watching this as well we'll be back in a couple of days the classico in la liga is coming up on thursday in the copa del rey bilbao play also sooner tomorrow at least the time of recording it's probably today by the time you're listening to it and of course there are a whole host of fa cup games that were today and are tomorrow along with the upcoming weekend games so with that stay healthy stay safe and we'll talk to you all soon thanks guys